Let's do it. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. I was once described as the manager, the mentor, and the visionary who went to the theater with an unfocused dilettante and raised the curtain on a superstar. Hello and welcome. This is episode 35 in our series exploring the history of the management rights company Mainman, which was renowned in the 70s for transforming the business side of rock and roll. While allowing Mainman artists to explore their creative freedom, the company pioneered promotion and marketing techniques that became synonymous with the decadence, extravagances and indulgences that are now part of rock folklore. The people that worked for Main Man were all all these fabulous New York Queens. <laughs> and it was just kind of it was kind of funny. It did add to the complete uniqueness of the situation and not only on stage was it theatrical, but off stage it was theatrical as well. <laughs> Main Man's founder, Tony DeFries, worked with a diverse range of clients that included Amanda Lear, Mick Ronson, John Mellencamp, Mop the Hoople, Dana Gillespie, Mick Ralphs, Iggy Pop, Lou Reed and David Bowie. I had a strange kind of uh, string-knitted costume made with three hands on, two of them on my chest, looking like I was being gripped from the back. Wooden hands, they were a light plywood but beautifully carved spray-painted gold and uh, a third one on my crotch and uh, I know he started a riot with the Americans and they said oh we cash all that that's subversive and that's uh, you know oh we went through hell so I had to take the hand off my crotch and then of course they didn't like the kind of black pouch so again like the diamond dogs thing where they airbrush the dick off I mean I was, I was having more erasure <laughs> problems it followed me all through the 70s. In this episode, we're featuring publicist Anya Wilson, who was one of the very first members of the Main Man team and worked mostly on David Bowie's releases, beginning in 1971 when DeFries and Lawrence Myers informed Gem. We'll start with Anya explaining how she came to work with DeFries. An ex-boyfriend of mine, Tony McCauley, who wrote... Um, Baby Now That I Found You and things like that. So I was um, actually between jobs and Tony called me and he said, I've got this song called Love Grows When My Rosemary Goes and I'd like you to plug it for me. I've just joined a new company. I'm with Jem, with a a lawyer with Lawrence Myers and he and another couple of lawyers are um, entertainment lawyers and what they had decided to do was pull together and start a music company because they had law and they had the connections and they had everything like that. So anyway, he said, if you do this and it's a success, then you've got a job. So I thought, all right, I'll try it. And Rosemary was a big hit, which I was very fortunate. So I got a job there. And one of the lawyers was Tony DeFries. And with him, he brought David. He was his client. And uh, I met David and Angela actually just after they got married. And David was in a very, very sort of hippie mode then. And I got to work all Gem's stuff. So I worked on two singles there, which was Memory of a Free Festival. Yeah, that's right. Great lines of the sun machine is coming down and we're going to have a party. And he did that. And then he had a track called Holy Holy. So I worked on those. They weren't terribly successful. Memory didn't do it. Neither did Holy Holy. I think Holy Holy was an attempt at more of a commercial thing. It must be terrible as a writer being told to write commercially. But what we tried to do there is because he was 
constantly experimenting with his looks. He was good television, independent television, I might say. The BBC wouldn't touch him. You know, we used to trog off to Manchester all the time where there were those little shows. I think there's only some unrecovered footage. It was one of those small news shows where they had music on and the producer was called Steve Sparks and I don't think we've ever, ever recovered that uh, footage. It would be amazing if they did. What was exciting was the entire imagery, everything about him. His songs, his lyrics were very exciting, I found. it was. I mean, I, I'm pounding the pavements at the BBC working bubblegum stuff. It was a nice departure from me to see something from the beginning and see something grow like this. So I was all impassioned, although there wasn't a hope in hell anyone would play it. And I was also working Mark Bolan at the time. And that was, again, another Gem connection because Tony Visconti was involved with Gem. I was the one, actually, that worked Ride White Swan, and that got to number two. So it was a time for new sort of music. The only outlets we had was John Peel and Bob Harris, basically, that understood. Taking it commercial was a whole other thing. Because Annie was working very closely with David during those early days, like the rest of his team, she spent a lot of time at Haddon Hall and remembers it fondly. Big old haunted house, very much so. It was a salon, really, for David. Angela ran it like a salon. She was a perfect host, absolutely. And she introduced David to quite a few people. She accommodated folks that he wanted to meet. And I think it gave him a lot of confidence, all these talented people around him, and they all were buying into what he did. And she was the same too. She was American, so that was exotic to all of us. And, you know, she was very charismatic too. And she would throw dinner parties and have everybody there. And she would make it her mission to keep everyone connected. I believe in synchronicity. I do believe that uh, certain people at certain times are what make things work. He was always changing. I mean, he was always up for change. And I think that's very rare in an artist. Everything that David did was another step in a different direction. I mean, he loved Jacques Brel. He had a huge capacity to absorb. And Andy Warhol, he was fascinated by him and he was fascinated by how the family worked. I mean, uh, he was very into the mime and, well, he was he was very theatrical. He had a huge sense of theatre. I mean, that was what he did. He was always in plays before he, uh, it, well, plays and music. But acting was, was a big passion of his. Lindsay was a big uh, influence. I don't know how long he was actually with Lindsay. I know Lindsay once said to me, he said, I'll take credit for the best things he does, but I'm not taking credit for the worst. David respected people who had passion for what they were doing. And we all did in our own fields. And I think that's what made it work. Because by the time Ziggy came along, we were all so ready. We'd had that little bit of history with him. And we were just so ready to go out and kill for him. After David finished recording Hunky Dory, he immediately began to work on what would become the Z Stardust album and briefed Anya and the team on the concept. Di and I were invited to Haddon Hall. And David told us the concept. And DeFries had told us the concept too. So it wasn't sort of like, it's something we learned to live with, as right. opposed to sort of one big, you know, this is what I'm going to do. And it came with various songs. We were all working other stuff. So then we would have meetings with David. And then we would, uh, like I say, Di and I went to Hatton Hall. And that's where he, he gave us the lowdown on what it was. And he was so inspired. And it was amazing. And he was recording songs into his little recording thing there and uh, Mick and, and the boys were living there at that time so it was just a very creative atmosphere 
But when I really got to know the songs, it wasn't the full-fledged songs I got to listen to in the studio. I prefer to listen to them when they were done. I've never been a fan of studio proceeding where it says stop and start again and all that. Because we'd had changes, don't forget, at radio. And by that time, we'd had time to sort of wind the media up. And I think they were ready. Yes, please. Because, you know, after being through memory of a free festival and holy, holy, this is finally something I can work with. The worst thing was what put us off media for a while was when he wore that Mr. Fish dress. And we had a problem with that because when the publicity for that went out, literally when trying to get him on TV, I was told by one of the producers who used to produce occasionally Top of the Pops and a specialty show that, you know, they didn't have perverts on their show. And he was a tough sell. Part of that tough sell to TV was as a result of the Melody Maker interview with Michael Watts in January of 1972 when David made the now famous quote, I'm gay and always have been, which came as a shock to Anya. I did not know. You know, I was told to get an interview. (laughs) And we got the interview. And, um, of course, then he spilled all that out and made history with that magazine. (laughs) You know, I agree with Rono there, actually, I think he wasn't above the shock tactics and he didn't care. He wanted to be a certain person. And uh, yeah, God, Britain at that time with gay was, was, uh, I mean, it was really bad. And I, I think him announcing it was really revolutionary to a lot of young people. He totally got it right. And then it was, it was, yes, I'm gay. And then it was, yes, I'm bisexual. And what we noticed with a lot of fans and working class towns, whatever, would come to the gigs. They would dress up like Ziggy. They would uh, all say, I'm gay, I'm bisexual, whether they were or not. And it was quite revolutionary. It did a lot for sexual freedom. Once the Ziggy tour started, David and DeFries carefully planned how the shows evolved. He would call us all in the morning and ask us, a certain team of us, what we thought of the gig. He was looking for critiques. He was very, very good like that. And I think it, you know, it started off a little clumsily. And then it was, as they all got confidence, it was a second to none performance. Everything he'd learned from Lindsay and a little bit more. And I mean, also, it's a musical comfort as well, because Mick and Woody have been with him since Man Who Sold the World. So they had sort of gelled into the perfect relationship where creation and music are concerned. And I think they developed another sound for this. And so that has the identity of Ziggy as well. The media attention was ramped up a notch after the Oxford Town Hall gig in June when Mick Rock captured the moment that David filleted Rono's Golden Gibson and that photo was used as a full-page ad in Melody Maker. Well, we, we had expected it. We had seen rehearsals. David had all kinds of ideas. He was good at reading the audience. He became very, very good at reading whatever audience was there and the timing. And he would do impromptu gestures. Mick embraced it. I mean, it, you talk about working class lads. You know, I'm, I'm from the North too, and Mick, Woody and Trevor are from Hull. So um, I don't know. It's a bit of a stretch, but they got into it. He was big on photography, don't forget. I mean, we had several photographers And Tony DeVries always insisted that we buy the rights. So the photographers could not have misuse of uh, the photos they did. We were so controlling over that one. I think these days with people with their cameras, we wouldn't allow any cameras in to the auditorium because, of course, Britain is a tabloid mentality. So therefore, 
the most awful pictures from somewhere are bound to come out of you. So we kept a real tight rein on that and tried to sort of post really good photos of David. That was a huge priority. We would wait 10 minutes for an encore. When they had finished a performance, the magic thing was 10 minutes. No sooner would they go out. They figured if the crowd would stick it for 10 minutes, they really, really want him. And of course, the crowd got into a frenzy. The 10-minute rule, yeah. Spending a lot of time at Haddon Hall, Anya got to know all of David's team and friends very well, including Freddie Baretti. He was one of the most charismatic people that I've ever met. He was absolutely beautiful. He was fun. He was so funny and extremely talented. He made everybody laugh. He was really, really a special person. And again, he was very, very talented designer. That was his passion. Freddie and Daniela were, were fabulous people. And Daniela had an uncanny sense of fashion. She knew what was going to come up next fashion-wise. And yes, yeah, she had very, very close-cropped hair. She was a mulatto. And she had very close-cropped hair and often, you know, stark white and... Um, Different colours. I met Freddie uh, oh, actually before that when he was with a, a friend of mine who owned a, a clothing factory. He was using his sewing machines, which was great. I mean, he was passionate, passionate about design. Freddie and Susie Frost from Haddon Hall did the first Ziggy costume, the famous one. And that the Angela told me that the fabric was from Liberty's. It was upholstery fabric and uh, it was hopefully good to wear on stage. But everybody was involved in that. And uh, I remember looking at them all with their hair and I thought they were fabulous. In those analogue pre-internet days, generating publicity for a new act involved a lot of legwork. It's pretty gruelling. You have to go in every week <laughs> to various producers and sell your wares. They had heard from me a lot because they knew my belief in David. You know, they gave me a chance with this one. He had the best of both worlds, really. He had commercial tracks. And then he had tracks that could never be a single. He'd been a single success once. And I think that must have scared the living daylights out of him. It was space oddity because it was hard to come by again. Eventually, the hard work paid off. And in July 1972, Bowie was booked finally onto Top of the Pops. Somebody had cancelled. And they called and said, can David do this? Is he free? And I said, well, yeah, he's not doing anything. And I called Tony and uh, Tony said, yeah, I know, no, that would be great. But then, of course, I had to, <laughs> well, you know, nobody likes to think they're in there because of a cancellation, because David had a lot of confidence with his material and, and loved it. So um, I had to fluff the fact that it was a cancellation. So I took the heat that it was uh, very last minute. And <laughs> anyway, he did get there and did it. And it was amazing. One thing that I cite, too, as a mesmerizing moment was when we finally got on the old Grey Whistle Test, which was another cancellation, because that was really tough to get him on there, uh, was when he did five years. It was a huge coup because we had been working that show for ages. And nobody was interested, and it was the secretary there, Jenny, Jenny Evans, who was a friend of mine, who gave me a call and said, quick, call Mike Appleton right now. I said, why? She said, there's been a cancellation. Is David free? I said, well, yeah. She said, well, call him. I've told him there isn't anybody else. I said, oh, if there's nobody else? She said, I don't know. I haven't called anybody. So she was helping me to get that. And uh, when he got on there, it was fabulous. And I knew, I, I mean, I knew his performance so well 
that when somebody saw him, it was a no-brainer to have him on again. The charisma came through. Theatre had always been big, and he transforms into who he wants to be. It was all just to try and work with audience response. During this evolutionary phase in the relationship between David and DeFries, Anya was able to see how they evolved as a partnership. It was an amazing relationship between David and Tony. Tony would facilitate what David wanted. And if Tony didn't see what it was like, he would sit down and talk to David, why and why not? And David would make the decision based on that. But his support was that he wanted to make it as comfortable as possible for David to be creative. One of the things DeFries said, actually, which was funny, was uh, that he said, uh, because, I mean, no question, too, Angela was high maintenance. He said, oh, I can manage David, all right. He said, it's Angela. (laughs) That's the difficulty. And he was new to this business. And so that I think that made him absolutely fearless. He didn't want David to worry about anything like rent, anything like that. He had to live in a nice place. He had to be surrounded by creative people because Tony believed that he was a star or he had star quality before he was a star and that that's what was necessary to keep him focused. He didn't want him having a job and having to worry about this and that and, and working with music on the fly. So he bought into all this. We, I mean, we were all part of this. And I'm sure it was why it worked. I mean, Stewie came along a little later, and Stewie was one of the pals from Hull. And uh, eventually he had his own security company, which was good. So he evolved from just being David's bodyguard uh, to that. But David needed somebody too. I mean, he got mobbed a lot of the time. He needed security. We had to get him in... Uh, in at the backs of buildings. Ziggy was just the ultimate gig. And uh, he had made a lot of fans. It was always young. I would say it was from 14 upward, but lots and lots of young kids. And they would dress like Angela and David. They would really go all out. People used to dress like Mick. And that's the good thing about theater. When there's a little theater in the act, they have characters to copy. As well as looking after the publicity, and you also oversaw the Ziggy Stardust fan club. We had great fans. And what we had was lots of volunteers. I mean, oh, God, sometimes some of the fans would do a laundry on the road. And one fan, Susie. Susie actually is Susie and Kevin from Newcastle. Susie started doing the fan club. And by the time we had Ziggy, the fan club had expanded so much. The DeFries had to rent an apartment just for the stuff that came in from the fan club. Because it was all mail then. It wasn't email and stuff so uh, it was so big and uh, we had fans that actually designed they had remnants of material whether they got it from uh, Angie or whether they got it from Freddie but the original materials from the costumes and, and they would make dolls and I'd love to know where those dolls went but yeah I actually uh, found the name for the fan club secretary which was Stella Steele and so Susie was Stella Steele paid and from being a volunteer she got from a corner of a desk in Mainman literally to an apartment that was purely for the fan club yeah it was that popular I should try and find her David's success meant that he was able to help out some of the acts that had inspired him so during the peak of Ziggy's popularity he produced Lou Reed and Iggy Pop he wanted Tony to collaborate in helping these guys too he was fans of theirs And actually, when Iggy came across, Iggy was in great shape. I mean, he was just eating meat, protein diet. 
and exercising. He looked amazing. That was when he had the silver hair and mm-hmm. everything and did the King's Cross gig, which was quite legendary. And I was actually at Haddon Hall. Di and I were there for dinner when Lou called and asked David to produce Transformer. And uh, that conversation went on for about an hour. But that was uh, David was so thrilled, I mean, to be recognized so much that somebody he really admired wanted him to produce the album. Because Anya worked with both David and Mark Boland, she was in a unique position to observe their personal and professional relationships. I found them very different. I mean, Mark, very, very different. I think David may have been inspired by what Mark was doing, but David went so much further. They didn't really talk about it. There was a little bit of a feeling, I must admit, but then again, David is magic, so he, he would make sure that he and Mark got together, and then it was all fine. You know, if they got together on a personal level, and then it was fine. One thing I noticed with the live, David surrounded himself with great players. We always had good sound. Mark had good players, but a very small band, and I always found, sadly, that they had, I don't know, I've forgotten who they had for sound, but the sound was always bad. That is so sad because Mark was so magic. And after several years of the epitome of rock and roll excitement, Anya was still part of the team the night David killed off Ziggy on July 3, 1973, at the Hammersmith Odeon in London. You know what? I had hoped it wouldn't happen. I heard rumours from everybody when I was there, and then it did happen. It was devastating because it was the end of that era. I mean, we'd all had an incredible ride with that. And it was sad. I just saw Mick afterwards looking drained and pale. Annie Wilson recalling her days as a main man publicist as she saw David evolve from the struggling folk wannabe into a rock megastar. She was right there from the beginning. Some great stories. And there are some great pieces of memorabilia from this period in rock history that are part of an ever-growing archive of main man documents, including articles, telexes, letters and production notes, a lot of them never seen before, that we're adding to the main man label website each week. It's a great record of a very exciting period in rock history. That's at mainmanlabel.com. And on the website, you can also check out the other episodes in the main man series. I'm Des Shaw, and this is a Zinc Media MM Tech production. Thanks for listening.